Hey, it's Agrisa Dandrell, and you're listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast, which calls for revolutionary healing of self and community that can allow us to outgrow cultures of scarcity and hyper individualism in order to move towards more caring and regenerative ways of living and working in community. Today, we're joined by Samantha McKay. So, we've come to prioritize this sense of business and convenience and quickness, and healing beyond that is a slow process. It takes time and intentionality and it isn't easy to monetize or to categorize or to figure out how to build. And understandably, you know, as the you know Western medical system has evolved over the last hundred, several hundreds of years, it's focused on how do I understand how the body works? And to do that, I've broken it down into all its individuated pieces to understand each one even though all of them are hyper-connected to each other and to things that aren't easily observable under a microscope or the, you know, the relevant piece of technology. And so as we've gone down this one mindset that involves or includes both this productivity and this specialization, it's closed off like this space for a paradigm where we can see beyond that because we're not necessarily living in a culture that values taking our time for deep conversations can't monetize it it's only when people are willing to step outside that prevailing cultural mindset that prevailing paradigm and start to value different things even if the people around them or the culture around them doesn't value or reward that that you can start to come at things from a different perspective samantha is a personal development coach at individuo incorporating the enneagram into her integrative approach to inner work She came to this work through a journey of recovering from chronic pain, illness and anxiety and discovering that in order to shift her pain, she needed to master a range of skills that strengthened her inner resilience. On her multi-year journey of recovery, Samantha has learned that some treatments act like a short-term band-aid and others provide more permanent healing. She incorporates the Enneagram into her work for this very reason. It helps us invest our time, energy and resources into inner work that provides true relief. Hi, Samantha. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. It's lovely to see you here. Oh, it's lovely to see you too. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. Before we dive into the conversation, which I feel so energized for, I really just want to do a breathing exercise with you, if that's okay, to just ground ourselves in the moment and in this space that we will be co-creating together in the form of this episode, if that's okay with you. That is perfect. To begin, we're just going to gently close our eyes and really just give ourselves the permission to notice and to bring ourselves back to our bodies, to feel what's going on below the head. We don't get given that space to do so. And so just really allow yourself in this moment that we are sharing here today to slow down and to notice how the body has been responding to particular events perhaps that have happened today or this week, past week. This could be anything, happy moments, 
moments full of tension. Just try to focus on that one particular emotion, feeling that you've been harnessing in your body for some time now. Try to notice a particular part of your body that perhaps has been responding to that emotion or feeling in a way that you have noticed, but perhaps haven't allowed yourself to really be in tune with that. So perhaps if you feel an uneasiness in your heart, try to focus on that. Maybe you feel that your mind is just going around in circles over a particular thought or emotion. Try to focus on that. Maybe you feel that your shoulders are locked in a position or your stomach feels that uneasiness. Maybe you feel a stiffness in your legs or your knees. Now place one of your hands on your heart or your stomach to really just allow yourself to be there for yourself. This moment is just for you and you alone. And notice how just within the few minutes that we've shared together, how your body is slowing down and how you're holding this moment for yourself. We're going to take five deep breaths together, but please feel free to pause this recording and take more deep breaths if you wish. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Now in your own time, when you feel ready, gently open your eyes.
Thank you so much for joining in with that. Well, I really felt myself really fall back into into myself, which which I always love. I think it's very easy to forget how wound up you, know, you get. I've noticed that I often um, walk forwards, so I'm leaning into the balls of my feet a lot and not mm-hmm. sitting back in my heels, and it takes a lot of effort for me to relax back into my heels. And it almost feels like there's too much sense of safety and relaxation when I'm fully into my feet in that way. And, you know, noticing these different body positions and how, you know, various mindfulness or meditation practices can help us see the positions our body's holding and then Mm -hmm. using it as a guide for what that, you know, could be saying about how that's translating into our wider life and health and, and way of being. So. It's good. Thank you so much. Yeah, that makes that makes so much sense. And I think practices like these, especially if we are going to be getting into discussions that perhaps will be quite difficult for a lot of people to get into and to, you know, allow themselves to be vulnerable within those spaces. I think embodiment practices are just so essential to making you realize your own capacity to engage in such conversations, but to just Really just allow yourself to slow down and to actually notice these patterns, right? And I just think doing such a practice is so essential when we are talking about things like these. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. Yeah. You can learn a lot more sometimes from doing than just from analyzing or thinking about it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So Samantha, to just begin the conversation today, I, I think the audience and I would just love to hear how you came into this space of personal development and also finding Individuo? Well, it's been a long journey. The real turning point in my life was in 2009 when I was living in London and working as a lawyer, but was really, you know, very sick, very unwell on almost all levels. So, you know, physically I was covered in these large welts. Emotionally, I was really disconnected and cut off. You know, mentally, I was just going around in circles on thoughts and worries and, you know, insomnia and not sleeping. And then spiritually, I was really disconnected from the wider world and my purpose and my path. And so I was struggling on all levels. And I had been doing so for a while um, and really denying that I was in pain, denying that I wasn't functioning, denying that I wasn't well, even though the evidence was right in front of me every day. And there was just this one moment when I was in the office and I looked at this case I was working on and I realized that I just didn't remember anything about it. You know, in this, this, my brain, this thing that I treasured above almost anything else just wasn't working, you know, and it was only six to nine months earlier when it really was this photographic cataloging, Mm -hmm. categorizing, you know, tool that could find anything really, really quickly. And that was the moment that really shocked me and changed my path forever because it was then I was like, well, it's time to really get help. You know, it's time to start down the journey of trying to acknowledge that I have this pain and to release this pain and all that that meant. Um, And along that way, I um, became a coach. Mm. I changed careers a few times and did a lot of healing work on all four levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, um, because I think they're all highly connected when it comes to healing. 
And yeah, in that's own way, it's led to individuo into that sense of I think the healing work that the healing work that people need to do or that someone who needs to do that work, it doesn't necessarily happen in that corporate space or in that workspace. It happens in the personal space. And everyone still has a job, but I just found that the work that I felt was most meaningful and most impactful and most needed that I could most provide is, you know, one-on-one, safe, present, um, acknowledging someone as they are, where they are now, yeah, and helping them be in that space in whatever they need in that space. And, you know, I have a career as, as a trainer and I do a lot of, you know, teams and group works and, and sort of programs, which I have stepped away from to some extent because for me, I wasn't seeing it as having the impact that I wanted to have. And so, you know, I think that's part of my path because I know other people work in that space and do an amazing job. But that's sort of what led me to this, you know, supporting people in helping them change how they show up inside of themselves and the relationship they have in themselves. And then by extension, the relationship they have with the world and the people around them. Yes, absolutely. I just want to connect back to the point you made about the mind, the spiritual and the emotional, right? So these different bodies that kind of make up who we are. I think especially in Western places, we do see that inability or maybe healthcare spaces don't have the capacity currently to make that connect between the physical and the mind, the spiritual and the emotional. And a lot of the somatic symptoms that we do see appearing, of course, in our bodies, and these can be connected to chronic illnesses, a lot of our healthcare systems just don't provide that space to build that connection to something that is much deeper than day-to-day stress or something that is perhaps deeper than the physical, right? It can go back into our histories of illness and trauma. And a lot of the time people are just unable to get that help, I think, from a lot of healthcare providers. So why do you think most of our healthcare, particularly in Western places and Western cultures, we're just unable to provide that space for patients to build that connection to their histories and also to the symptoms that are appearing on their body of these illnesses. Yeah, well, I'd say that's a lot of the the paradigm, you know, the mindset of, you know, the Western healthcare system as it exists in the culture of, you know, what started with the Industrial Revolution, you know, in that, that sense of mm. we have to be productive and we have to be busy. Yeah. And so that has led to a healthcare system that prioritizes how do I give you a band-aid or a pill that will help you get back to the office or work as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And so we've come to prioritize this sense of business and convenience and quickness, which means, you know, and healing beyond that is a slow process. It takes time and intentionality and it isn't easy to monetize or to categorize or to figure out how to build because, you know, it's how long's a piece of string and that string will be different lengths for different people for different reasons. And understandably, you know, as the, you know, Western medical system has evolved over the last hundred, several hundreds of years, it's focused on how do I understand how the body works? And to do that, I've broken it down into all its individuated pieces to understand each one even though all of them are hyper-connected to each other and to things that aren't easily observable under 
a microscope or the you know the relevant piece of technology. Mm-hmm. And so as we've gone down this one mindset that involves or includes both this productivity and this specialization, it's closed off like this space for a paradigm where we can see beyond that, where we because we're not necessarily living in a culture that values taking our time for deep conversations. Yeah. You know, we don't get paid for that. We can't monetize it. And and so it's it's only when people are willing to step outside that prevailing cultural mindset, that prevailing paradigm, mm. and start to value different things, even if the people around them or the culture around them doesn't value or reward that, that we can start to come at things from a different perspective. And I think there have been shifts, you know, in the last several decades, we're seeing the rise in understanding of emotional intelligence. In the last sort of 10-ish so years, uh, 10, 20 years, we're starting to see the rise in understanding of somatic intelligence, but it's got a lot further to go. It's definitely behind the you know emotional intelligence route. And we've been living in a society that values intellectual or head-based intelligence for hundreds of years. And so the other two have really got a a long way to go before they're really more accepted or understood in the wider, you know, broader cultural sense. Yeah. And so, yes, we are seeing the rise of integrated medicine in some ways, but some for some people, integrated medicine simply means looking at the physical body as a whole, not necessarily looking at the physical body and the emotional body or the mental body or the spiritual body. And, you know, for all those, you know, those reasons I've mentioned. And so it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's complicated. It's complex because we're living in a very complex system, both within our bodies, because mm. we are a complex system, yeah. but also the healthcare system is, you know, and healthcare is is complex as well. Yes. And I think alternative medicines, right? They they are providing that alternative pathway, but the goal is still the same. The goal is still you need to get better so you can get back into that productivity culture that you were mentioning, that you can go back to the office space. So as you mentioned, it's all about intentions. It's about setting that intention and realizing that the pathway of healing, it's a process not to get back to the state you were at before that illness came about, but it's to get to a state that will provide you with that resilience to face something like that again in the future, if if something like that does occur. But it is about resilience building. It is about, I think, just getting out of that mindset that a process like healing has to be efficient. It has to be quick. And the end goal needs to be that you get back into that culture and that mindset that perhaps could have created those that that environment to actually get you into that position that you needed that support, you know, that you needed to look out for these different routes to healing and the pathways to healing. Mm. I think that's like you can think of it as terms of the cure and the healing, you know. If you're seeking a cure, it means you're trying to conveniently go back to where you were before. Yeah. And healing is moving towards somewhere in the future. It's recognizing that the illness, however it started, whether it happened because you had a car accident or because you know you've had a, a difficult childhood or it started with food poison, however it started, if something has lasted and chronic means anything longer than th- three months is the technical definition, mm-hmm. um, anything that's sticking around for a while is usually asking for you to do some other work. There's another reason it is there, and it's the call to go beyond the physical and look beyond it, behind it in some way. Yeah. And I think 
the next question would just be how do we for ourselves begin to identify that the expression of inner wounding or things that we've internalized how do we begin to identify that expression as connected to something that is deeper than the physical that goes beyond the physical how do we begin to make those connections for ourselves if healthcare spaces and services are just not providing the tools to make those connections Mm. Well, I think it's it's tricky. I feel like there's no straight answers to these questions, which is why we're having this conversation. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, so part of that is being able to see, I think there's a step that comes before being able to see beyond. It's, you know, if you were living in a paradigm that says Western medicine is the only form of medicine, then the question you've just asked isn't even going to come up for you. You know, because there is an assumption that that is the only mm. type of health or healthcare there is. And so the first step really is that moment where you can recognize or understand that, that there is a broader definition of, of health and healthcare and what that looks like. And then once you step out of, you know, into that, into that paradigm or that way of, of thinking, then it's really understanding that any time that you are, you know, ill for a prolonged period of time, that there is something else behind that. You know, that's that's basically it. Because I think even if, you know, someone I know recently had a horrendous motorcycle accident and he's been in and out of, you know, was in hospital for weeks, but in and out of surgeries for months. And so even though that in itself is focused much on the physical, she is going to be going through a challenge of her whole life is changing. Mm. The life she knew before of having two functional legs and, you know, being a freedom-loving person that is going to be completely changed. And so even if the work she has to do isn't related to, you know, her knee starting to function again, she as a person has changed and there will be a need to grieve that loss and grieve that transition and figure out who she is in the new world. And so there's always something else happening no matter, mm. you know, what our body presents us with. And there is always, you know, a piece of emotional, mental or spiritual work to do and it may not always be obvious what that is. And so I, I think really it's allowing ourselves to be present with just that sort of fact or that reality and just trying to see beyond it. I think the greatest difficulty is always just acceptance. You know, as I described earlier, it took me years, months of living in pain to accept that I had a problem because humans are really good at denying reality, denying things we don't want to see. Mm -hmm. or things we don't want to deal with or acknowledge. And they don't have to be physical. They can be, you know, relationships that aren't working or, or situations that are toxic or unhealthy. It can take us a really long time to go, actually, this there is a change that needs to be made. And sometimes people think that acknowledging that or accepting that a change needs to be made means they need to make the change immediately. And that's not the case. Those are two completely separate steps in the process. But the first step is just accepting reality that something isn't right and then considering what might actually need to change or what steps you might need to start taking to change. Because I think sometimes we get so afraid of acceptance because of what might have to come next or the fear that we have to make mm. or enact that change immediately. And we don't, but acceptance is really just the, you know, that initial step, but it's a really large one to take at times. Yeah. And I think we, we say it's a step, but I think that in itself, it's a process. I think it's a process within the process of healing, right? So it's not something that you can just get. I think 
it requires so much work. And on top of that, you are processing whatever trauma that you've been through. Yeah, it's a, it's a very complex thing, I think, acceptance. Because sometimes I feel like you can get into that cycle of, okay, yes, I have accepted it, but then something could happen in your life or a particular trauma could be triggered and you feel like you're falling back, that you realize that you haven't fully accepted that reality. So I think it's it's very difficult. And for that, you require so much patience with yourself. I think we'd be quite harsh on ourselves, perhaps more than others, right? It's very easy to criticize yourself and to put yourself down. So I think it's difficult to even get to allowing yourself to accept that reality, to accept that this version of you is is different from perhaps a version of you that you were comfortable in previously and now you're having to become comfortable with this with this reality and with this version of yourself it's a very difficult thing yeah and I think that's a really important point to make because it can take us reaching a breaking point Mm. before we were willing to you know for some people that means a heart attack and being hospitalized for me it was losing my you know part of my brain function or my memory function the way it worked before I think I think you're right. In, in, you know, acceptance is a, is a process because for many people they don't accept things until there is no nothing else to accept. You know, there is they've passed the point of no return. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So Samantha, you work with the Enneagram, okay, which I think is a very powerful tool in itself. So for people who haven't really heard of it before, they're not they're not familiar with it. What sort of tools can it provide adults in mapping their histories of trauma and chronic illness in a way that is more specialized? It addresses their personal needs rather than sort of taking a one size fits all Mm. approach that a lot of us are so used to within the dominant healthcare culture. So the Enneagram is a psycho-spiritual tool for development, particularly adult development. And so what that means is it helps us identify our, you know, psychological wounds or the psychological work we need to do um, and provides tools for that. And then helps us then understand the spiritual work that we need to do and what that looks like and provides tools for that. And what it maps out is at its core, nine patterns of um, thinking, feeling, and acting. And so you know, one you know, one way of seeing the world and of living. And what that means as adults is that we only see the world through that single lens. We're not actually seeing reality, you know, and we just talked about acceptance. You know, and so when I was desperately ill, I was only seeing the le- the world through this one lens mm. um, and using that as a way to deny how sick I was. And so when we learn about the Enneagram, it helps us give language to and see these patterns within ourselves, which means we can use them to help, you know, work with that healing and whatever it looks like. And it also then reveals, as we start to do that work and see what's beneath that pattern, it helps us identify the the trauma or the wounding that is reinforcing and making that pattern needed. So to go back a step, the we have an ego. And that ego is like a shell that exists around us. And we call that personality. And so personality is not the real you. It is the false you. And so the Enneagram helps us see that false you and helps you 
understand that it's held in place to protect you from wounding you experienced in childhood. And when you're a child, you know, you don't have the emotional, mental, financial resources to to help yourself to survive. You don't, your brain isn't fully developed until you're, you know, 25-ish. And so anything before then, you need some ways of defending and staying safe and managing these hurts when they arise. And so we reach for one of nine tools. Now it's far more complex than that, but we're each for one of nine tools, which we all have access to psychologically. We're all born with these tools available, but there's one we tend to reach to first before we reach to the others. And in kids, these are healthy survival strategies. It's really important that we form an ego mm-hmm. in, as as kids. Ideally, that's a healthy ego and that we use these tools. What happens is as adults, we forget that we're using them, you know, because this started when we were in utero and when we're first born and in those really important first three years. And so when we, you know, 25 years later, we've forgotten that we put these structures in place to keep ourselves safe. And so the Enneagram helps us give language to and see these patterns and then tools to help work with them. So there's there's a lot to it. So I think the Enneagram can be applied to sort of adult development in general. It doesn't just have to ap- apply to chronic illness. But anyone with a chronic illness can help them see how um, what how they're thinking and feeling and acting about it and how to start to make a change, start to do the opposite and to release that need. And so it really is, it's it's like a paradigm in you know change. It's you know, it's to use an early example, it's been able to go from seeing just Western or just Eastern medicine and starting to see both as um, a viable choice. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm trying to think of what would be the best way to really help explain this in in a simple way. So all of us need emotional development in some form. You know, very I know few people who really had, you know, really emotional, intelligent parents who really got, you know, very strong emotional development as kids, you know, and it definitely, you know, I don't think it comes through this educational system as strongly as it could yet, because, you know, this is a really important skill. And so what happens as adults is we tend to react to situations in a particular way. So let's say there's four core emotions, anger, sadness, fear, and happiness. And so we tend to overuse, you know, some of those emotions to defend ourselves and to stay safe. And we underuse some of those emotions. Now, ideally, to be a well-balanced, you know, adult, we have access to all four of those emotions equally. We feel them as necessary, um, and we don't hold on to them. We we take what that we need to learn from them because feelings provide us with data and information, and then mm-hmm. we let them go. But each of the nine types, um, and there are actually a lot more than nine types on the Enneagram, but there's nine core types that I'll use to help explain this. Um, does something a little bit different. Um, and so there are three types that have a special relationship with anger. And so the type eight, um, I realize this is sort of an out of order, but it's sort of these, these are the body types and they have this challenge with anger. So eights overexpress anger and they go to anger really quickly because for them, it's really painful to be in touch with their softer side and their more vulnerable side and the hurts underneath. And they're really afraid of appearing weak. And so for eights, the work to do is to start to become more comfortable with their softer side, get in touch with that and start to experience sadness and sometimes even fear a little bit more. 
Um, for nines, they have very uh, low level of emotions generally. You know, everything's very calm. Everything's very friendly. Everything's very yeah. go with the flow because they don't want to feel separated from other people. And so they have, they're not in touch with their anger at all. It's really important they start to get in touch with their anger, but also the other emotions as well and start mm-hmm. to bring them into their conscious awareness more. Type ones tend to take anger and see it as bad. So they convert it into something else. So they can look very polite or envious or just anything that um, feels better than anger. So for ones, it's learning how to channel anger in a healthy way. And one of the things when we talk about anger, it's really important to, you know, is a lot of us see anger as bad in our many of the cultures we live in say anger is bad. Rage is bad. Anger is healthy. Anger helps us know what's important to us, what we value, where our boundaries are. It sets our personal power and it helps us stand up to injustice. Mm -hmm. So anger is actually really important, but how we use it and how we channel it and how we express it, those are the skills we need to learn. Um, So to not see anger as bad, and this applies for all types, but to see it as how can I recognize that I'm Mm -hmm. feeling angry and how can I express that in a healthy way? And so then you have the next three types, twos, threes, and fours, which are known as the heart types or the relationship or the emotional types. Yeah. And they have a special relationship with sadness. Um, And so type twos um, tend to focus on what other people are feeling, which means they often Mm -hmm. reach to happiness a bit more easily and sometimes sadness a bit more easily because they want people to like them. And so what twos need to do is really focus on getting in touch with their own emotions generally. And they really need to move away from people, spend time alone in order to do that. It's been very challenging for twos to get in touch with what they're feeling and what they need. But then, you know, they also need to learn to get in touch with expressing, um, you know, anger and fear as well and not just reaching for happiness in some way. Type threes often appear very unemotional, but they're one of the most emotional types on the Enneagram, but they set those emotions aside in order to be more productive in order to perform more, in order to, you know, appear successful in some way. And so for them, it's learning to slow down and start to to get in touch with the sadness they're not feeling, Mm -hmm. but it's often easier for them to experience fear. And so sometimes fear can be a good starting point for them to see what will be the consequences of me continuing to live my life the way I am. Um, But they do have a lot of sadness that they're trying to not get in touch with. Type fours um, don't do as much sort of shape-shifting as the twos and the threes, but they feel their emotions really intensely, more intensely than any of the other types. But what happens is they get stuck in those emotions. They get stuck in sadness, and they can really start to um, attach a story to that sadness and really wallow or invest in it. Um, and so for fours, it's learning to realize that feelings aren't everything. Feelings aren't their reality and learning to let those feelings go. And, you know, most feelings only need to last for the length of four breaths, you know, 15 seconds. And so you just allow yourself to really breathe through, sense what that emotion is telling you, and then release it. Now, of course, there are times when emotions do last longer than that, but that's, you know, a starting point to realize that we aren't our emotions. They are just coming with some information and then to release them. Then for the head types, you know, the five, sixes, and sevens that focus on being more analytical, they have a relationship with fear, but most of them don't realize how anxious they are underneath the surface and how much trying to control the environment around them to not feel the fear and to feel safe is dictating how they live their life. So fives actually are afraid of feeling their feelings and they compartmentalize 
compartmentalize them. So they separate their thoughts and their feelings. And so for fives, it's actually just starting to generally get in touch with those feelings and become more comfortable expressing them in the moment. Um, and sometimes a good starting point for them would be to learn to express anger um, as an expression of what they need, you know, and, and, and coming out of that shell. The sixes um, fear sort of being, being in their own authority, being in their own power, and they often outsource that to other people or other things in some way. And so for sixes, it is, it's starting to see that they're overthinking and they're worrying about scenarios and risks and creating all these plans um, as opposed to taking action is a consequence of fear and becoming more aware of just how the role fear is playing in their life. Sevens um, use happiness defensively. They use happiness as a way to avoid feeling suffering or pain in any way. And so they have easy access to happiness, but very poor access to sadness because sadness can feel like suffering. It can feel endless. Mm. And so for sevens, it's about getting in touch with that fear underneath, but also developing a safe space in order to start feeling that sadness and realizing it isn't endless. It isn't forever that when you just allow yourself to breathe with it and be with it, it actually passes very naturally on its own. But th- it can be very scary to take that step and to start stepping into that space. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I think that really just does hold that complexity when we're talking about the different patterns that you know we as individuals have internalized and are perhaps struggling to outgrow certain cycles that are making it quite toxic for us in terms of like the patterns that we are stuck within and we are exercising. Just one question. So you're talking about these different types. Can you also have an overlapping of the types? So could one person sort of maybe have an overlap of like a seven or eight? Good question. The answer to, there's a very, there's, there's no straight answer to that. The answer is no. And then yes. So, um, we are only one type. Um, we at, at the core of each type is sort of an emotional distortion and a false belief. And we only have one of those. Mm. If we had more than one, our psychology would just be really all over the place. So we have one of each. Okay. But then when you look at the Enneagram symbol, you'll see that there are arrows connecting each point to each other point. Um, and those are known as arrows. And then mm. the other one can be called wings, which is the two points either side of that. And all of those are resources for growth. Um, they are things that that particular number can reach out to either in a healthy or an unhealthy way um, to help them cope with stress or, or what's going on. So I'm a seven and I have arrows to five and to one. And so if I'm going to five in an unhealthy way, that means I'm withdrawing from the world and trying to hide from things. I'm going to five in a healthy way for growth. That means I'm learning to deepen my relationships. I'm learning to do research and read a book really slowly and carefully rather than skim read it like I would as a normal seven. Mm. And so each of the arrows we can go to in healthy and unhealthy ways, but they are, um, they serve, they serve a purpose. The other way that, um, there are more than nine types is what's known as subtypes. And there are 27 subtypes. So for each type, there are three survival instincts that mix with these emotional distortions and fixations and create these different patterns of behavior. And so I'll use the, the fours as an example. So the three survival instincts are self-preservation, 
social belonging and sexual fusion. So self-preservation is about keeping ourselves alive. It's putting on a jumper when we're cold, eating when we're hungry, making sure we have shelter and, and financial security. When that's distorted and mixed with um, one of the, the, you know, the types, it shows up differently. So for the type four, that means, you know, because I just said the fours tend to be very emotionally intense, it actually means the fours suppress those emotions and they try to be really stoic. They're all still there, but as opposed to feeling them and wallowing them, they tend to go out and try and take action to get things. And they can look really reckless or, or like they're taking a lot of risks in some way, which is the opposite of what you might think of self-preservation. The social belonging instinct is about being in a group and being comfortable in a group and having a role in that group mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily needing to stand out or in some way. Now, when you mix that with the other, with the type, that changes how that shows up. And so for the social four, that means they do tend to be that more stereotypical four where they do spend more time talking about um their sadness and how they feel about it and wanting the group to really know how they're feeling. And then the the sexual fusion is about one-to-one relationships and how you respond in one-to-one relationships. And um, for some people, that means, you know, really fusing with the other person, really merging with the other person in some way. But there is a lot of vitality um, and energy and passion behind that instinct. And so when it's mixed with that four sense of longing or having a sense of lack, the sexual four actually gets really angry. They're you know the angriest type on the Enneagram that because they're really wanting they start demanding things that they want or need in order to feel special and extraordinary. And so there are these 27 different patterns and under each of those instincts is a complex you know, trauma at play, either that's happened in our life mm-hmm. or an intergenerational trauma. And as you start to do work on those instincts, you'll start to notice what is the trauma or wounding behind that. And then you can work, you know, figure out what kind of therapist or practitioner or healing modality you need to attend to what's beneath that instinct. And so that's why people of different types and people of the same types can look very different because the trauma underneath that that survival instinct is going to be different. Yes, absolutely. So yes, there's a lot of complexity yeah, to it. <laughs> yeah, but it makes so much sense. I can see how you can begin to map that out for yourself and then work with a professional in understanding, you know, the sort of traumas or intergenerational traumas that could have caused uh, these different patterns. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think from there, you can also start building connections to the signs that you're getting to see on the physical body as well, right? So I think the Enneagram is just providing that pathway, I guess, to actually working out where all of this is beginning or where did this sort of start from. Mm. So yeah, I think that that's a that's a different way to to see it. And that's something that I haven't really come across. I really liked how you mentioned the connections to the resources and how one type can be connected to the different types and the way in which we build those relationships are really important as well. Mm. Those can become healthy or unhealthy. So I think that's a that's a really good sort of ecosystem approach. And it's a real sh- shorthand. If you're working with a practitioner, you know, a therapist who understands the Enneagram, it means if they if you come in and say, right, I'm a self-preservation five, 
they're going to know pretty quickly what some of the underlying issues are, what are some of the things you need to work on, what are some of the challenges and the paradigm you're living inside of. And so they can ask questions and create an environment in which you feel safe and trusted sooner, but are asking questions or focusing the work on your difficult points, you know, and what's going to be challenging for you. Um, and that's what I aim to include in the in the coaching work. It's if you know someone's type, then you understand a lot of the complexes behind it. Even if you don't know the precise trauma that's driving it, you'll understand where those pain points are and guide a person to help them identify which of, you know, as you can see, many, many different possible pathways or what we need to work on. So someone could come to me and we discuss what's going on and I go, I can decide, okay, do we need to work on, you know, your core type issues or arrow issues or a instinct issue, you know, and that's one of, you know, 30 possible options. And we do the work in that space. Um, as opposed to going, okay, you're a four, so we're going to do four work. Well, that may not be what you need right now. Yeah. So it's it's understanding and being able to see a person where they're at and what mm. they're facing through that lens so you can be more targeted. That doesn't necessarily mean the work happens any faster, but it just means you take away the distractions or working on tools that you know aren't going to have the same level of impact. Yeah, and a lot of therapy spaces, they – require you to start from tell me about a bit about your past or the traumas and a lot of people don't have the language to even describe that to the therapist to someone that they are just meeting um within that space and i think focusing on you know for example the enneagram the types i think that just that takes away the pressure from a lot of people entering that space to actually give language to what they've experienced i think that's you mm. don't realize how difficult that is until you're in that space so i think this mm, is a really the words yeah so i think it's a really good way to actually think well what are the needs of this person and then try to find the source of that you know or the source of patterns that they've internalized i think that's in some ways it's probably more productive in that way or i think that that can help people um who are already going through so much and yeah, perhaps they just don't have that language to explain to that therapist what they are actually experiencing mm. and then understand the sort of needs that emerge from whatever they've experienced. Mm. Yeah, I was with my first therapist. I didn't have the words and I actually needed a therapist to do most of the talking for me. Yeah. You know? And mm -hmm. I went to an, a counsellor who sort of expected me to do the talking and I didn't have that skill, that capability, the language. Yeah. I couldn't. You know, and that's so I was really lucky to find someone who could work with me where I was at. Mm. Now, 10 years on, 10 plus years on, I need a very different type of therapist or counselor because I've attained those skills. I've come, you know, I've, I've grown, I've developed, I've come a long way. And so I'm looking for something different. And I think it's understanding when you go through your journey with the Enneagram or not, that we have different needs at different times. Yeah. And it's finding someone who can help us in that stage. Exactly. But having the language is so key. I mean, I remember when I started my coach training, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't have language for emotions. I didn't realize how big a gap that my emotional development was. I just didn't realize. And so I had to go and Google what are words for emotions and start to really not just learn the words, but then connect them to my own internal experience, which you know, took time and, and took practice, but, you know, it was really important. But without the words, how do you start to connect it to your own inner experience? Yeah, exactly. 
And the way in which we use words will be different, I think, for every single person. The meanings behind each word, right, that you're using Mm. will be different. The intentions of that use of word as well. So again, it should be a very specialized treatment. It should be a process that is very specific to you rather than following a sort of generic framework that most likely won't work for a lot of people. And what the Enneagram, you know, as many tools, and obviously I've mentioned tools, but I thought I'd give this example to help understand. It's asking you to be able to do things differently that you might normally would. So like imagine, you know, your, your lounge room and you've got a couch and you've had the couch for, you know, five, 10 years and you've always had the plastic over it. You never took the plastic off. And so the plastic sits on that couch to protect the couch. And what the Enneagram is asking you to do is to be comfortable taking the plastic off the couch. Now, of course, you're attached to that plastic. You know, that plastic means something to you. Mm. And so it's doing the work to understand what that means. Maybe take it off for a little bit, put it back on. Maybe you find an alternative. Maybe you switch the plastic for a sheet. But it's learning how to eventually not need it, to be able just to sit on the couch without the plastic or, you know, without anything. And so, but it's it's asking, it's teaching you how to do something different do the opposite of what you might normally do yeah but you don't start there it's a you take multiple steps to get to there Mm. and i think that's pretty much grounded in permission practice and something that you really center in your work and i think that's just so powerful in terms of resisting to sort of controlling mechanisms of productivity culture and i think just the overarching systems that really oppress our creativity and oftentimes our ability to think outside of a culture that is really just working to mechanize the human being itself. I think it's it's a very toxic culture to live within, but just sort of the conversation that we're having today and um, this world sort of spaces that we hold is a form of resistance that is just so powerful, that is bottom up. And it's working within those systems, right? It's working to reimagine the systems whilst living within them and to engage in such work you do need to be allowing yourself right you need to be giving yourself permission to do so within the context of chronic illness why is permission practice really essential in sustaining health of our bodies so the mind the physical the spiritual the emotional and really just building resilience uh, for the long term yeah when i w- we tend to be played with a lot of excuses you know, I don't have time for that or I've got to work or I'm just too busy, you know. And so in in 2015, I had, I was burnt out. You know, this is, you know, still on top of all the, you know, autoimmune conditions and all the other chronic stuff, I was burnt out. And I quit my job and initially I had planned, I had lists. I was like, right, I'm going to meditate every day, then I will do yoga and then we'll read this book, then we'll do this. Like I had lists. And a friend of mine who'd been through this before said, no. You will do you will do nothing. So firstly, write down all of the things you want to do, but all you're gonna do in every moment of every day is listen to your body and do whatever it wants to do. And if it wants to do something on the list, great. But if it doesn't, then that's okay too. Mm-hmm. And so this was this first moment of I was giving myself permission. Yeah. You know, because I could have ignored him. I could have stuck to the list and nothing would have changed. So I was like, okay, I'll give myself permission to try this different thing. And then I noticed my body just wanted to sleep a lot. We did a lot of sleeping. And then eventually I was like, well, 
how about we add a walk-in? Let's go, you know, I love walking, you know, why not? And so I said to myself, well, let's go for a walk first thing in the morning. You know, you love watching the sunrise first thing in the morning. And all of a sudden, I started procrastinating about getting out of bed. I was like, hang on a second. You don't have to be anywhere. You're not going to work. You love walking. You love you love seeing the sunrise. It's not like a morning problem. Every aspect, there is no excuse here. So why are you struggling to get out of bed? What is it about this? And so I realized I'd put this rule in place. I said to myself, well, the rule is you're going to get out of bed at seven o'clock in the morning and go for a walk. And I was resisting the rule. I was, you know, my body, because my personality doesn't like being told what to do. So there's, there's some seven-ish stuff coming in here, but I didn't know that at the time. I was rebelling against myself. And I was like, okay, so how can we create a rule mm-hmm. that doesn't stop me, that I don't procrastinate again? Like what part of this do I need to give myself permission for to do differently? And so I changed the rule to be after you've gotten out of bed in the morning, go for a walk. And so I was giving my body permission to stay in bed as long as it wanted to, to sleep as long as it wanted to. And the second it was ready to get up and start the day, then I'd go for a walk. And that just created this great sense of flow within me. And I walked every day for the next year and it was with ease. You know, all that resistance went away. And so I discovered in this moment and then using this tool again and again and again for the following years mm-hmm. was that it's there's something, it's finding what we're resisting. You know, it's finding that resistance within ourselves and then giving ourselves permission, sometimes even just to have a conversation about why we might be resisting that or what might else be going on. And so sometimes that permission is to talk about permission. Um, and sometimes that permission is to go to a therapist or to, or to even, you know, engage with a therapist or even to consider that we might need help. But we live without realizing it within a vast set of conditioned rules, rules that we haven't set for ourselves that have been ingrained through the family culture and the social culture and, you know, every other, you know, the environment we live in that we follow blindly without realizing it. And of course, our personality, our ego plays a role in this as well. And so in order to heal, we have to be able to start to look at those rules and give ourselves permission to change them or alter them or play with them in some way. And so permission is really key because it it speaks to our head. You know, this is, it's an analytical process, but it also speaks to our heart and our nervous system and our own sense of safety as we start to go, oh, well, yes, it is okay if I take the plastic off the couch. Or actually, it might be nice if I rearrange the furniture. Um, Or maybe I can give myself permission to quit this job, you know, or maybe I can give myself permission to not worry about money. Maybe I can give myself permission to see the world through a mindset of abundance rather than scarcity. And so some, I think permission is playful. It allows us to play and experiment with different ways of thinking, feeling, and acting, different ways of being, of trying on different rules and seeing how they fit. Do they create more space? Do they create more flow? Or does it not create more flow? And sometimes I think my examples of this are really silly because one time I wanted to go for a walk and I was resisting. And I was like, why am I resisting? And I was like, well, I don't, can't be bothered. I was already wasted half an hour already tying up my shoes. I just want to wear my, you know, slides, my Birkenstocks. I just, you know, and I was like, well, then wear them. You know, we just won't walk as far because your feet will hurt. But what does it matter? You know, the most important thing here is to go for a walk. What does it matter what pair of shoes you're wearing? And so sometimes it's just pausing to try and just see where the disconnect is. And it might be something really silly. And I won't ever know why. 
Like why in that moment was I resisting a pair of shoes that the day before I'd worn? I'm not going to, you know, sometimes you don't need to find the trauma underneath. Sometimes it's just giving yourself permission to do the different superficial thing, no matter how silly it looks, and just seeing what happens. And so I think it's a crucial practice on many levels. Yeah. And I think that will still connect to the things that are deeper than the superficial, right? So if we are changing that pattern, then we're training ourselves on how we can break out of patterns that are much deeper in terms of traumas and illnesses. So I think that's a really good way to practice how you can start to change that, how you can reframe healing. Because sometimes when we talk about healing, it can seem quite heavy for people that, oh my God, you have to do so much here. When in fact, it is about just changing, um, just trying something new. And you you do that with with the mundane or with with something that's not as difficult to process. Mm. So that I think that's a yeah, that's that's super powerful in terms of actually learning the ways in which you can break out those cycles. Mm, and I think that's an important point. You don't always have to get into the, you know, the the event or the thing that caused the trauma or the wounding or the resistance in the first place. Um, I think that's a really important point. Sometimes it's just about creating flow and ease in the body. Thank you so much. Samantha for coming onto the podcast. I genuinely feel as if we need many more episodes to talk about this. I feel like this is just like an introduction <laughs> to the Enneagram and just to everything that we've talked together about here in terms of breaking out of those cycles and the tools that we do require to do so. And I think that's just so powerful and it really just expands outside of just a single episode. I think you you should definitely come back onto the podcast and dive deeper into this because it is so complex and I think it's a very beautiful and very powerful tool, the Enneagram, to really just help map out a pathway to healing that is so specialized and so specific to our needs. And that's something that we I think all of us require. So thank you so much for providing that insight. Thank you. And thank you for creating this beautiful space to hear, you know, these different perspectives and different ideas that in some ways seem very normal to me, but I know for others are very unusual. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really appreciate you creating a space for these kind of conversations. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast. Please subscribe to and rate the podcast on any podcast platform of your choice and connect to the podcast on Instagram and Facebook. To connect with Samantha and to learn more about her work, visit individuo.life and visit mindfuloveverything.com for full episode resources and archives.